This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. This episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast is brought to you by the Creative Writing Community. I started the creative writing community for writers of all levels. Ultimately, writing is something we do up in our office, all alone with our computers or paper and pen. So what could a writing community do for a writer, you might ask? The answer is a lot. In the creative writing community, we sprint several times a week, which is how I'm getting upwards to 30,000 words a month while traveling and having three kids at home. We also gather together to brainstorm problem areas in our stories or in our marketing, as well as share what we've learned. And we have master classes where experts come in and talk to us about what they know about the publishing and writing industry. And that happens one to sometimes twice a month. We also have the private Slack community where we can share articles and tidbits about our novels and really become friends who are interested in seeing everyone do well in their writing and their publishing career. Writing doesn't have to be a lonely job. If you're looking for a writing community, I invite you to try us out. Head on over to catcaldwell.com and click on creative writing community, or you can head straight on over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing community. And just a heads up, admissions closing in October. We really want to gather together and be a community and be bonded together. And for that, we're just going to have to close the community for a couple months at a time. So if you want a community through the winter to help you get writing and possibly finish that book, or maybe two, head on over and sign up. If you have questions, shoot me a question. I am completely open and available to any questions you might have. We will close in October and we won't open again until April. So I highly encourage you to check us out. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast. Today is September 9th. Happy Labor Day to everyone in the United States. And today I am excited to have a returning guest, Karen Anderson. She spoke to me, I think before the pandemic. We tried to figure it out, but we couldn't remember. So she is a writer and she's been in the publishing world. She has worked for 25 years, I think she said, in this sort of writing and publishing industry. And so she has a ton to tell us today, a lot of good advice, a lot of tools that we can use. So I'm excited for you to hear from her. So this week, as I am now two weeks with homeschooling and nobody's died yet and my Daughter has not disowned me. (laughs) Everything's going well. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about editing again. I know I keep sort of like, I'm not really beating a dead horse, but you might feel like I am. I, I was thinking about it today, even more after the interview with Karen, because the thing is, Whatever we get out onto paper, whether we write it out or we type it out, our first draft, a first draft is really a first draft. And I really want to to sort of bring this home to you guys and really drill it into your heads. Your first draft 
is not the draft that's going to get published. But I want to tell you that what you're reading right now, the book that you love right now, that's not the first draft. And I know that we know this, like every time I say it, I'm sure everyone goes, oh my gosh, duh, obviously. It's like one of those things that we know, but we don't know. Like we won't admit, we won't really admit to the truth of it. Every time we read a brilliant book, like The Sympathizer, that is a brilliantly written book. The allegories are spot on. The adjectives are perfect. The description, you are right there in it as you're reading this book. It is a beautifully written book. And I can 100% agree, I would bet money on the fact that what I'm reading is not the first draft. I want you to really understand that because for some reason, as writers, we tend to be really hard on ourselves when we go back over a first draft and it needs a lot of work. And I can attest to this, like even (laughs) it wasn't even the first draft that I started working on last summer of Coffee Stains. It was several drafts into it. And what has come out of it is several revisions after that, right? And then even after getting feedback from some readers in my group and from an editor, I realized it still needed work. And that can feel really overwhelming. Again, it's normal. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and it's normal that your book needs work. And it's normal to think that it shouldn't need work. You see all these things that are working against us. We have this book that has caused us grief and joy. It's cost us time. It's cost us saying no to some activities because we wanted to get it done. It is a labor of love. It was hard to do. And then somebody tells us that we need to change it or we realize ourselves that we need to change it. And that's hard to accept. I do want to reiterate from a few weeks ago that the more you write, the better your first drafts will get. You know, like the more painters paint, the better they are at painting. Have you ever seen a painter, almost like like maybe the caricature painters, you know, if you go up to Montmartre in Paris, um, if you go to San Francisco, at least before COVID, probably New York, a lot of these sort of great downtown areas and you can sit down and this person will just like draw out within less than five minutes this great picture of you. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's more serious, but typically they're doing a really great job. In Paris, the painters will still set up shop and they'll just start painting cityscapes of Paris and they're doing it real time and you can watch them. And I remember the last time really remembering and reminding myself that that wasn't the first painting they ever painted. The way that they could get the Eiffel Tower and the depth of Paris and the beautiful cityscapes and the streets and all this, it was because it wasn't the first time they were doing it. They'd probably painted that probably exact scene dozens, if not a hundred times. And now they can really whip it out and get it done in no time. And you can come back and buy the painting, you know, that same day with the caricatures. They know how to write them. If you tried to ask me to draw a caricature as, as easy as it might look watching somebody who can do it, I can't do it. 
you'll end up looking like a stick figure. You know, and it's not the first time that they are drawing. They would not set up shop and say, this is the first time I've ever drawn anything. Do you want to pay 30 euro for me to draw you? Like, probably not, you know, probably going to go to the guy next to you. But for some reason, writers really think that their first draft should be close to excellent. And I struggle with this. So I know that at least half of you struggle with this. So I talked a few weeks ago about getting my draft back from the developmental editor and just how much work it cost me. And to be fair, I got it done within a month, but I was like gung-ho ready to get it done. I really really tackled it, even though it felt overwhelming and it was kind of an emotional experience. Once I realized that it was better because of it, and I confronted myself every day with the question of, are you going to put out the best book that you can, or are you just going to put out what you have now? And I had to answer. I wanted it to be the best book that it could be, right? And so what was the answer? The answer was, well, then edit it and fix it. I want to encourage you that if you are writing a first draft to keep writing and Karen and I talk a little bit about this of what, what should be expected from writers, what we should do, what keeps the story going. And she even stops herself in the interview and says, you know, I want to make sure that people don't come away heavy hearted saying, oh, I could never write, you know, I might as well not even begin. And I don't want you to quit and I don't want you to not begin. But I do want you to realize that the first draft isn't the one that you're going to publish and that's okay. And to take the time to fix it, no matter what time it takes, is completely worth it. Now, for about five weeks at the end of this summer, I had a newsletter go out every week talking about what we could do to help our editing process, right? And so there's quite a few resources on catcaldwell.com on my blog. Uh, right at the top, you can just go click into blog. The more you practice your craft, the better you're going to be. The more you learn from the masters, the better you're going to be. And so Karen even mentions that you should read great works because you're going to sort of intuit what makes a story. And I would even take that a little bit further that you should probably start reading great works of fiction and looking at them from the question of story, from questioning it as a writer. A lot of people call this deep reading. So you're not only reading for enjoyment, but you're reading to see what the author did. How did they pull you in? Why is it that you love that book? In fact, you could go back to the books that you love and start reading them again, start thinking, What is the author doing that just captivates me? And now how can I do it? Because I guarantee it's not just the words and it's not just the prose that captivated you. Now, I mentioned with Karen that I'm reading Crying in H Mart, and it is a beautifully written memoir with perfect adjectives. It makes you very hungry (laughs) because the description is spot on. But I can almost guarantee you that it wasn't the first draft that had all of those in it. And I can guarantee you that only going through and having the right adjectives is not what pulls me in. I can 
appreciate them as a writer, right? But that's not why readers are reading this memoir. And so if you go through the books that captivated you and you start not only analyzing perhaps how you want to structure sentences or, you know, how you like how they use adjectives or similes or what, you know, all these big grammar words, but what captivated you? How did the story pull you in? What about it worked? That's called deep reading for a lot of people is going back and sort of analyzing that much like you would do if you went to go get your MFA or you took a literature class. That's kind of what the professor's trying to get us to do, right? <laughs> Even though half of us go and just get the, <laughs> the notes from someone else. I never did that, obviously. So I want to encourage you to read, 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 and maybe read in a different way than you've read before. I also want to encourage you to go to my blog and start at least there with the, the books, the podcasts, the resources of people who are storytelling masters, writing masters, people who know how to tell a story, how to write well, and they have put it in either book form or podcast form or worksheet form to help you. Because the better that you know your craft, the better your first drafts will be, right? And so if it is your first draft, or your third book, the first draft of your third book or whatever, and and you're still feeling frustrated, maybe take a minute to learn from the masters, to read a book on storytelling, to sort of understand what it is that might be missing from your first draft, or to just practice your craft in a different way. I have the Writer's Portable Mentor next to me, it's by Priscilla Long, and I love pulling this out. And you know, picking a chapter and going through and finding a prompt and writing in a different way than I typically do if I just sit down by myself. And I strongly believe that that will only make me a better writer. Maybe I will never actually sit down and write in exactly that way, a first draft, but I think that anything that I do, honing my writing craft will make me a better writer. Of course, I guess you could always argue with me on that, but I think it's true. (laughs) So I. I encourage you to do both of these things to, well, I guess three things to realize and be okay with the fact that your first draft needs to get done. And it is definitely not the one that will be published to realize that your favorite book is not a first draft published book. Okay. (laughs) Just know that they revised it. They probably worked with somebody on it. They practiced their craft a lot. and. Be okay with that, that though you have a talent of writing, we still need to do some learning, right? And then go and and pull the books that you love and reread them or pull some short stories and read them and try to answer the questions of what is pulling you in and how you can do that in your stories. And then head on over to catcaldwell.com and click on my blog and find those five It's basically the exact copy of the newsletter to find all of the resources that I put in there so that you can take some time to practice your craft and get better and better and better. And the more you write, the better your next first draft will be. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Karen Anderson. This is a little bit of a longer podcast, but I think that you're really going to enjoy it. All right. 
I am so excited, everyone, for this episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I have Karen Anderson back with me. If you've been a longtime listener, you might remember her from, I think, a year and a half ago. It's really, really long ago. It's in coverage years. It's like a decade. I know. I know. We should we should brand that COVID year. I know. How have you been doing, Karen? I've been doing well. Thank you. It's um, been an odd season, but the book world sure feels like it's exploded, so... <laughs> I know everything has changed. It's like that one moment in your life, you know, you can go back and see like, oh, the day I got married, the day COVID hit. Yeah. So crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. So I did want to talk to you a little bit about the book world, but before we go into that, can you tell everyone kind of what you do as a writer and in the publishing world? Well, I have been in the book world for 25, 30 years. Like it's been a long time. And I have pretty much done most of the things you can do in the book world. I self-published my first book in the 90s when it wasn't cooler kosher to do that. I got picked up by a national house. So I did the full kind of author, you know, the big author tours and all the stuff they were doing ages ago. And then I worked for a book publisher doing special projects. And what did I do? I did I did a little bit of everything there. It was a very successful publisher. So did a lot of fun things on the on the publisher side, mm-hmm. looked at a lot of manuscripts, did a lot of acquisitions, did all of that. That was fun. Then I took a little break because I did family caregiving. Cause you know, when you get to a certain age, it happens. You know, lost my mom, Steve's mom, you know, it's just things happen. And then I wasn't sure what I was doing. <laughs> And, you know, like, uh, you know, that saying that, you know, you make your plans and then God laughs or something like that. <laughs> well, I'm done. You know, I'm not doing anything. And I met a young man who, you know, young man, he was the same age as one of my kids. And so he was a young man <laughs> and uh, his name was Ryan Levesque and he was writing a marketing, an online marketing book and needed help. So I ended up sort of, you know, collaborating, ghostwriting, like whatever you want to call it on his book. It's called Ask. It's a a book about if you're promoting your book online, then, you know, how your, your service, whatever it is, not just your, your, if your, your product online, it's how to engage and ask. So if you see people doing quizzes and surveys, a lot of that origin came from Ryan and his book. And then I met David Hancock, who was a founder of Morgan James Publishing. And it was really interesting because my like I have careers, like first, second, third. My first career as a marriage and family therapist. My second career, I was in marketing. My third career, I was in books. And I met when I met David. He um, basically Morgan James is considered a hybrid, which I call the best of both worlds. And so, in terms of publishing, you get kind of all the benefits of a traditional publisher. We do production and distribution, but you keep your intellectual property, so you keep your IP. The traditional publisher, you have, have production and distribution, but you hand off your IP to them. Mm. And I don't, I didn't like that. <laughs> and so, when I discovered Morgan James, I was like, I really like this model because the reality is these days, um, no matter who you are as an author you're expected to promote your book. You're expected to market your book. And people right. are often surprised when they think that a big house will market their book. And typically, unless you're somebody like really, really big, right. <laughs> um, like really big, you know, they'll give you maybe four to six weeks with a publicist. And then, then if your book doesn't do spectacular, then you're done. And then you don't own your IP anymore. Uh-huh. And so- so I like Morgan James because we at least own the fact that publishers don't do much. What we do, you know, we do alongside an author. So okay. 
So I, I really love that model. So I've been doing that for six or seven years now. And on the side, I write books and coach and do <laughs> and, other things that keep me out of trouble. And all the other things. Yeah, I'll just say. So um, I just did a book. I did a, the book I did in 19, which was really interesting to do because I ghost wrote my husband's book. And, um, and we're still married. Still married. <laughs> he survived. We survived. Um, I have white hair now and <laughs> I had white hair then. So it, it didn't turn then, but it probably would have. <laughs> Uh, and it was a really interesting process. It was an interesting process, but it was the book is called "The Bezos Letters: Fourteen Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon." Whoa. And so it hit the USA Today and Wall Street Journal list, and it's done really well. And then I kind of collaborated, ghost wrote, actually ghost wrote um, an Enneagram book uh, for Jeff and Beth McCord called "Becoming Us." And then I, and I'll, I'll tell your listeners about it too. There are two books I did recently for folks. One is called brand you by Mike Kim. Mm. And I helped Mike. Mike's a brilliant, he is a brilliant marketer, but like many people, my husband included and Mike included brilliant, great at helping other people, but couldn't quite get out of their own way when Mm. it came to doing their own books. Right. And so Mike's book is really how we all are personal brands these days. And how do you how do you brand yourself, your experiences, and how do you meet people and serve people through your own brand? Whether you've got a full-time job or it's your full-time gig to do this, it doesn't matter. It's really how do you position yourself? How do you position your product, your expertise, your service? Really good book um, called Brand You. And then I helped another woman with a new book that's coming out. I, Mike's just came out in July. And he too hit the USA Today and uh, Wall Street Journalist. So I got a little congratulations. Her, Gail Rudolph, Rudolph wrote a book that I helped her with. Um, it's called Power Up, Power Down. And I think the subtitle is How to Make Any Situation into a Win-Win. Isn't that bad? I sometimes forget subtitles. But it's called Power Up, Power Down. So it really is a book for women, although I love it when, when men read it. And it's really talking about that that spot for women, particularly when they're in a situation mm-hmm. and they can feel the power shift and they feel a little bit like, I don't know what to do and how do I manage this? Right. And what do I do? And she has expertise in that area. So anyway, that's what I do. I do, I do crazy things with books and help people to get their message out. Yes. I, I really enjoy that. It, and I, I was working with somebody I wasn't really working. It's a, a, it's somebody I know through my husband and he's writing a book and you and I had talked a little bit about him before. Cause I knew that you had ghostwritten or coached and I kind of want to know what the difference between that is. That's a great question, Kat. <laughs> because there are so many people with great stories and orally they can get their word or their message or their story across beautifully. Like they are the person you want to be next to in the party. And then they struggle to get it on paper. Not to say that us writers don't struggle with that too, because we do. So kind of what is the difference between ghostwriting and coaching and maybe even going into when is the moment that we should really start looking for somebody to help us? Maybe especially if it's a very personal story, I think those are, are the stories we struggle with the most. Sure. Great question. So for Beth McCord in the Becoming Us book, one of the things I loved about Beth is she is great on a platform. She has uh, like a half a million Instagram followers. She's kills it on stage. And 
love her. She was like, I can't put, I cannot put a sentence together. She has a reading challenge. And so that's part of what she did. Isn't that so interesting though? Because sometimes we think that what we speak, you just put it down on paper. So I want people to understand, like, it's not unusual to be able to speak and not be able to write that same thing. Agreed. And I guess what I would say to that is the most in my, depending on your genre, but the most, to me, the way that you communicate well these days is conversationally. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people don't know how to write conversationally. Mm-hmm. And so they think that if they transcribe a conversation, that's writing conversationally, and it's not. Or they think that they can write it, and then they'll just fix it, fix the conversation, they'll just fix it, and they apply just like grammarly and check for spelling and whatever. And that's not it either. I have an editor that I've worked with before who's a copy editor, line editor, proofreader, whatever. And she actually had a, a manuscript that a client was using and she fixed everything. And by fixing everything so that it was, you know, it felt like it felt like it was correct. It lost a lot of its oomph because right. there's some things you just have to nuance and you have mm-hmm. to say it. Now, I mean, we're going on a rabbit trail here. I have a huge, huge, huge issue with um, broken sentences and incomplete sentences. I have a huge issue with that. Because again, one of the things about writing is I believe writing is a function of listening. When you are reading, you don't know it, but you are listening. And so the punctuation and, and all the things that are happening in your sentences is giving you that depth. So whether a conversation gets louder or it gets softer or, or it stops or whatever it is, you use that so that the person's listening in your head, in their head. That's what good fiction does. Mm-hmm. I mean, good fictions, you get sucked into the story. You hear the conversations. You see that like all of those kinds of things, particularly when people get into nonfiction, they sometimes forget that. And then, and they'll write kind of in a choppy way, I guess choppy is the right way, or they'll write, you know, like, like they're writing a a tweet or they're, you know, they're writing something that's supposed to be short and pithy and choppy and nobody cares is different in a book when you're actually in a, in a a paragraph in in a story, in a conversation, and you're trying to pull that reader through. My biggest concern with readers is what I call reading fatigue. Okay. Reading fatigue is when you have to work so hard to understand something and read something, then you go, I think I'm tired. I'm going to turn out the light and I'll, I'll finish that later. And then later never comes. Yes. Or you, you sit down and you're going, Oh, this is, this is, well, this is good, but you know, this is just, I'll do this later. Again, later doesn't come. Like the idea is, is that you want to get somebody, you know, those books that you read that you go, I'm going to stay up all night long Mm -hmm. and you keep reading and reading and reading because you're, you're just mesmerized by the content you're in it. And so reading fatigue can be a dynamic. So for example, I, we all have pet peeves. In print, not online. In print, I like to see a serif font. I want the letters to connect along like Times Roman. Most people mm-hmm. know time. And when I'm reading print, I want those letters to connect because that makes the eye strain less. When you're on a computer and you're reading or an, an ebook or whatever, when you're on a, a something where it's pixelated, you want a sans serif font. Right. You don't want those things to connect because you want your eye, it needs to be more crisp so that your eye isn't, isn't fatigued. So if you look at those things, when I see somebody do a sans serif font in a print book, 
they go, oh, but it looks so much prettier. It looks really pretty. And I'm like, yes, the designer made it look really pretty. But you know what? If that person's late at night and they just put their kids to bed and they have 10 minutes to read and they pick up your book, you want to make it as easy as possible for them to read that book. Okay. And so in print, you want you want those those letters to connect. It pulls your eye. But if you're, you know, if you really look at when you're reading online, you're writing a blog post or you're writing a tweet, then you want to use this air font. I had someone who's I've I've known for quite a while and she kept, bless her heart, she kept sending uh, her emails were all in a serif font. And I was like, oh my gosh, please change your, please change your emails and your SIG files. Because if I'm looking at it on, on, I have an iPhone, if I'm looking at it on my iPhone, a serif font is so hard to read. You need those letters to be, to really be crisp. And so she was like, okay, let me test this out. And she was like, oh my gosh, you're my favorite words. You're so right. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> it, it is easier to read if, you know, in a sense here. And so she changed it. Yes. And so, I mean, I think there are all these kinds of nuances that people, I know that was a rabbit trail, but I think that there, you know, there are things that how people read today, this principles are still the same. When you're writing a book, you have to pull a person through. It has to be engaging, right. has to be clean and crisp and clear in terms of how you write. Yeah. So, you know, if you ask me, so here's what happens. This is what's happened to me before is I'll get clients that want coaching. And then, and to me, coaching is helping a person figure out how to do it. Okay. That, that's what coaching is. That's what I do. Like I'll look at something and say, oh, you can do this, 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 and this, and then mm-hmm. bring back, come back, whatever. Ghostwriting. So I will sometimes slip over into ghostwriting going, okay, you're making me crazy. Just let me do this. <laughs> And often they will go fine, you know, because it's sometimes it's, it's just easier for me to do it. Or I'll, I'll do, um, I, I've done some interesting, there was this uh, one client I worked with and literally we pulled up zoom and we got his document and I, I shared my screen with him and I took his copy and I just rewrote it and had him watch. And he was just like, Oh, I get it. That, that makes sense. And so he didn't know how to do it, but once I demonstrated it and made it like, I would say, okay. And I blended sentences and I, I did the kinds of things that you do just to make it feel like it's flowing to me. That's always, it's always about flow. How is the copy flowing? So you had asked earlier and I will say like, I'm a huge Scrivener fan. Okay. What is Scrivener for anybody who doesn't know? Scrivener is a writing program and it's like 40 bucks. It's if you you get it from, and I can send your folks links for this, but it's called literature and latte sells it. And it's a writing program, but what Scrivener does, and for people that are Mac based, and I don't know if this is true on a a PC, people are Macs. I liken it to when you have uh, your photos up and you have an album and you have a photo from, let's say, you know, you've got kids and you've got a you know, you want to do highlights of their, their school year. Mm-hmm. You just create a, a, a folder that says highlights of school year. And then you put in the birthday parties and the events and you put it all into one thing. Right. Scripter does that for text. Mm. And so what happens is, is you can take a chunk of text and pull it into that album. You take another chunk of text and you put it into a different album. And just like in, when you're looking at, at photos, you can click and drag, you okay. click and drag everything. Nice. And so what happens is, is you get a fluidity. So if you go, oh, 
I opened with this and honest, and I do this all the time when I'm <laughs> working with people. It's like, that's a great opening, but honestly, it's your closing. Like that's <laughs> how you want to end it or vice versa. Right. Great right. closing. Love that. You really make more sense if you opened with that than if you closed with that. And instead of having like you're in Word or Google Docs and you have to cut it and figure out where it goes and paste it, all you do is you grab the text and you pull it in and boom, it's there. It's just like, it's just like moving photos around. And so you have this fluidity that I love because then you don't have to think in a linear way. Now, okay. I will say that Scrivener is, I'm trying to think of how to say this. My, my son-in-law has a Tesla. Uh, bless his heart. And I have a Nissan Rogue. And they both will get you to the same place. His has a lot of function. I literally don't know how to open the door or turn the car on. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I how get, to do yes, I know. Because they're, they're not 3D. They're like inside. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, how does this work? So um, Joseph Michael is a guy who had that same issue with Scrivener. Because Scrivener is very robust. There are lots of fun things you can do with you can color code things, character code things. Turn, you can turn on all the bells and whistles. And he created these videos called Learn Scrivener Fast. Okay. And they're like 90 second videos. And I literally don't write a book. And anybody who works with me, I require them to use Scrivener because I think the functionality is that good. Okay. And so what happens is, is that we were talking about that early first draft. That's crap. Um, Emma yes. Mott in Bird by Bird called it a shitty first draft. Sorry. Yes. And everybody has them. You do, you do them. But one of the things about Scrivener is you can kind of look at, you can have the whole thing, but then you can put it into, break it into parts and you can move those parts around. You can change those parts. And then if you go, you know what, actually, this doesn't belong in this book. This belongs as a bonus or this belongs as a second book. All you do is you do a folder and you go second book bonus and you just grab that material and throw it in there. Like you don't lose anything. Right. And so it gives you this, it, it gives you this fluidity, which I love because then I can look at a manuscript and say, Oh, guess what? Your sequencing's you know, not quite right. You got a hole here. You need to fill this hole. So you just stick in, uh, you know, chapter instead of, so let Typically, sorry, I'm I'm tripping over my words because I'm excited about Scrivener. Um, like you've got, <laughs> let's say you have 12 chapters, and then you go, oh, so what I typically do when I'm when I'm creating those 12 chapters, I'll do the 12 chapters, but then I may call them the title of the chapter, and then if I have to move it, it doesn't take things all out of order. If that makes sense, right? And but if you go, oh, you know what, this chapter needs to be two chapters. You just go and split it in half. And, and then, and you can see how, and then you can kind of get this 30,000 foot view of how your book is, is coming across. And then you can move things around. It's a little clunky, kind of like driving the, the Tesla if you don't know what you're doing. So I typically have, I have an iPad and I keep Learn Scrivener Fast on my iPad. And then what you do is if you go, how do I create a folder? You just click on that. It's a 90 second video and you go, oh, okay. And then I go do it. Right. I will tell people just the, the biggest thing that people get um, intimidated with at first is, well, how do I get the book that I'm working on? I, I've got like 120,000 words. Like, how do I do that? And so there's a secret in Scrivener where you take your Word doc and you just put a, uh, if you got it in Word, you put a hashtag, um, the pound sign in front of like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. And then when you open up Scrivener, you go to import and, and again, the tutorials say this, but import and split. And then you open it up and all of a sudden it just opens up no way. and you have, you have everything is separated out. 
It's oh my really God. Easy. Okay. You've totally sold me on this. And so I love it because you have, you have this fluidity. And then again, you can do all sorts of fancy things with it, which I do. I don't do, but you can, you can color code things. You can, you can look at how much time you you know, you can look at how much time you spent, what your word count is. You always get a running word count, you know, like if you're doing a word count on, and cause I do books and, and word count. So for me, a typical nonfiction book, I'm actually looking for 40 to 60,000 words. Okay. And so if I'm looking for 40 to 60,000 words and I've imported 80, then I go, okay, what am I going to do with that 20 or 25,000 words? Well, you don't have to be afraid. You just can keep pulling and moving and sticking at places. And then the nice thing about Scrivener too, you can take snapshots and you go, this is where I was. I want to go back there. And then you just go back and look at the snapshot. There's so many fun things you can do where you don't lose things. And then if you go, oh, actually, that should have been in there, you go grab and, and put it back. And so I have a, I, I always have a running folder called cuts. And I'll just throw things in cuts that I think, oh, I don't know what to do with it. And then I'll go back and put them in. Okay. And then you can take notes. Sorry, this is getting, we're getting off the rails here. <laughs> I think but, you, should, um, you should teach Scrivener. But this makes sense because if you're on Word or worse, Google Docs, you're just making more and more documents to put things into and eventually you lose them. They just, I don't know where they go. <laughs> With Scrivener, I, I have Dropbox. I save it in Dropbox in a Scrivener file and it, it's just, it's always there, but Scrivener backs up, I think every three seconds. And so you typically don't lose things in, in Scrivener. Yes. Okay. And, but you can do it different iterations. Now, sometimes with, you know, book, I'll do a whole book and I'm doing that one now. I'm doing a revision on the Bezos letters. And so I just kind of imported everything into, I just called it Bezos 2.0. Like that's my second version. And now I'm adding things to it and pulling in what I want and taking out what I want. But okay. it just gives you this, this fluidity with working with a manuscript. And so for me, you know, as a coach, I, I can pull up something in Scrivener and I'll be like, oh, you need to move this. And then we move it and it's painless. Right. You know, because I'm, again, what I, what I also think a good coach does is what I always do is I advocate for the reader. Like one of the things that I feel like I'm good at is coming into it with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when you're looking at a manuscript, I'll go, oh my gosh. I was like, you're, you're assuming the reader knows this. Like they don't know this yet. Right, right. It's, it's about timing information. If you're so close to it, then you go, oh, so you need to introduce this idea or you introduce this. You're talking. I had a read a manuscript last night from an author and she mentioned a, a person's name. Let's say it was Brad. And she was like, and Brad did this. Well, I had no clue who Brad was. Right. And so it turned out to be, I think, her ex-husband. So pretty close to her. So she was telling what happened, but she didn't realize that as a reader, like, I don't know who. And so those are, I call them stoppers. Those are reading stoppers. If I have to stop reading to figure out something, then I'm likely to go, not even know it, not consciously know it, but go, huh, you know what? I, I think I'm going to go to bed and I'll finish it tomorrow. Right. Later doesn't come. Yes. This is, this is why we all have stacks of unfinished books, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> there's it is. something unconscious more. And it's not like you dislike the book, but it just doesn't pull you in. Yeah. Or it, it's just, it's too hard and you don't know why it's too yes. hard. And so, so again, when I'm looking at a manuscript for somebody, I'm looking at those places where, yeah, this, this author did this where, um, and, and she had a, she was writing a memoir and she was writing her story. But it was so confusing 
because it made sense to her because she was sort of doing chronologically, but the introduction of the various ideas and characters wasn't developed enough. So I had to, I had to work too hard to figure out uh, Mm -hmm. what was going on. I'm reading a book right now that uh, it's a series and I'm enjoying the series, but it's driving me just crazy because uh, they're self-published, which again, I love self-publishing. I, I, I'm great with it, but please, please, please pay for a good proofreader. Yes. And so what's happening is I was in, I was reading through one of the books and I, I read at night for just enjoyment. I read fiction every night and I was reading it going, oh my gosh, this is making me crazy because wrong words, wrong punctuation. Last night I was reading it in the chapter. It was the word, it was the word too. She was talking about, and two other things. Only she was T-O. Spell check didn't pick that up. Yeah. Grammarly might've picked it up. And so at least use Grammarly. Yes. (laughs) Please, please at least use Grammarly. But that distracted me from the story because she, she didn't do T-W-O. She did T-O. I'm like, just pay for a good, there are plenty of people out there that are great proofreaders, pay for a proofreader, particularly if you're self-published and you don't have other eyes on it yes. and your friends yes. are going to read it and they're going to go, Oh, I loved that story. You're such a good writer. I really, really loved it. I think you should publish. Absolutely. But if you, if you want the public to enjoy it, you have to make it as clean as possible. And that's going to call for a good proofreader and a, a proofreader that can get your style and not change your style but help to help to make that to make it communicate well for your reader so that they don't want to throw it across the room like some people like I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I actually joined sort of this self-published editing, not editing, I guess review group. So mm-hmm. you know, the indie worlds were all trying to help each other get get up in the sales and in the ranks because sure you know, karma or whatever, whatever we each individually believe you're supposed to help each other out. And I got very frustrated this summer and my listeners already know, because I realized that though we know how to write and we have a story that's very unique and everybody had a unique story that was interesting as a premise or a plot. If we don't really know the craft well enough, And let's face it, like we all, even if we have a talent, we still have things to learn. We need a developmental editor or somebody with eyes that knows and understands, like you're saying, you need to take this off. You need to condense this. I don't understand who this is. This is too much backstory. This should be the beginning and this should be the end. I think that, that maybe we, we think that this should all be done by ourselves. Like if you're the writer, you should do it all by yourself, all in your own head. And it ends up being kind of a mess. And Mm -hmm. I read one book that didn't have dialogue for 108 pages at all. And I couldn't, and it was almost like he needed the story to get to a certain spot, but it took 108 pages to get there. Another one where it was just, it was a really interesting, but it, it just put every character's backstory boom, like right, right in the beginning. So it's just chapter by chapter, getting everybody's yeah. backstory, you know, yeah. and it's, it's almost like the, the books that impacted us the most when we were 11 were like that. And I remember sort of writing like that, even as an adult, because that's kind of, I don't know, somehow it stuck with you, but we need not only proofreaders or copy editors, whatever they call those, those line editors, they all line have their own name. <laughs> 
we also need kind of sometimes help from people like you that really can see the story and say, this is great, but we need a little work here. Yeah. And I would say for me, one of the things that's super important to me is to read really, really good quality high-end books. Okay. Books that are done well. So if you want to learn, read. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, it's that simple. And so the more you read, the more you'll go, oh, oh, how did they not see that? Like, you know, all of those kinds of things, the more you read. So for me, I exclusively am in the nonfiction world. I mean, I, I'll sign, I'll sign fiction if I if I really like it. Um, fiction's so competitive. But that said. Like I mentioned, I read fiction every night. I've read fiction every night for years and years and years and years. And part of that is that that story is so important. And if you're writing nonfiction, you have to have it based in story. You still yes. have to have it based in story. And so when I find good fiction, I read really good fiction because I want to know what's a compelling story. I want to know what pulls me in. I want to know what keeps me up till two o'clock in the morning when I got an eight o'clock call because <laughs> I, I can't put this book down. And I have a few favorite authors that I read and I read everything. And if you look at what's, I mean, you can look at what's popular and you can look at reviews to, if you, you know, if you're limited on time then you go, okay, what, what's a really good book and people will tell you and you'll get classics in there and then you'll get new people in there. But the idea is, is that I think you have to be reading really, really good books in order for you to be aware when you're writing, like some of that just comes, I don't know if you call it osmosis. It's not like taking an an English class. It's going, okay, what's compelling in here? What works? What was it about the character? What was it about the description? What pulled me in? All of those questions that you ask. And I think it's more imperative in the nonfiction world, because when you're writing a story, you've got the, you've got the benefit. Everybody knows it's a story when you're writing fiction, when you're writing nonfiction, then you're like, okay. And and this is my, this is my whole deal on uh, nonfiction is that I believe good nonfiction is a balance between information and inspiration. It's a balance between information and inspiration because you can tell people what to do, but if, unless they're inspired to do it, so what? You know, like nothing happens. Yeah, nothing that's like a textbook. <laughs> yes, it is. And and people don't want textbooks. They right. they really they want story, but they want compelling information where they go, okay, now now what do I do? And and that's always that's my first question that I always ask any author is when they get to the last page in the book, what do you want them to do? Mm. And if an author isn't clear on that, they need to get clear on that. <laughs> Yes. Do you want them to come to your website? Do you want them to buy your next book? Do you want them to get on your mailing list? Do you want them to go, oh, that was fun. Do you want them to leave a review? Do you want them to tell a friend? Like, what do you want them to do? But at the end of the book, you want them to do something. And if you don't know what you want them to do and they go, okay, I just, I wrote my book. It's a really good book. And there's nothing that you want them to do to me, then you can get into a drift. And that's an important question. I think for any book, that's an important question to ask. That's my, that's just my opinion. Yeah. And I think nonfiction is, I mean, you kind of have a a difference on nonfiction, right? So something like Brand You by Mike Kim is probably part of his story of getting into branding and he's, he is a genius and then how, you know, to apply his method. And then you have memoir 
um, which is, I find a very difficult thing to, to write because most people are so close to it that they almost think like, well, this is my story and that's enough, but I need to understand why should I read your story? You know, why should, and we do tend to write very linearly when we're writing memoir. So there's sort of these back and forth, but then I've read, you know, I've tried to read business books and things that I just force myself to finish but in the end there was no story to it so I don't really remember them (laughs) or what they were trying to tell me no the good ones the good ones have story and sometimes the story is sometimes there'll be a story in it and you don't even know you're reading story Mm. but you are reading story because that's what compels somebody so my my highest compliment I had a like two of my highest compliments and this is going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but I guess I am. But like one person was like, your book, actually, this was a business book. Like at the end, your book made me cry, brought tears to my eyes. Oh, wow. That was on a business book. I'm like, okay, that makes me happy. And another one was, yeah, I was on an airplane flying from um, New York to London and I couldn't put it down. Like it helped me get through the whole flight because I couldn't put it down. It was great. Like that's a really good compliment because reading is awkward in a plane. <laughs> It's very uncomfortable. So I always plan to read a lot, but that's an excellent compliment there. So, yeah. So anyway, those are the things that I'm looking for. And so I want the reader to have that experience that they want more. Mm -hmm. They want more. They don't want less. They want more. Yes. And so if you make it hard for them, then they want less. If you make it easy for them, they want more. And you make it easy for them by doing that balance between story and information and making it easy to read, connecting sentences. Like chopping, choppy isn't bad. You can do choppy for if you're doing it very intentionally. But a lot of times people think it's cool to write in, in, in sentence fragments. And to me, if you have too much choppiness, if you keep stopping, then it's fatiguing. And you right. don't even know that you're tired. Right. So I'm like, all right, could you connect your sentences? That would be, that would be a really helpful things to do. Yes. Yes. There's a little bit of psychology behind it, right? Like if, yeah, you want, if you're trying to make a point in one certain place, you do it, but you can't do the, can't do a whole manuscript. I do it in every paragraph. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we anyway, I get, on my, I get on my high horse and everything. So. <laughs> no, but it's nice that there are people like you who have all this information are able to teach it as well and to help people because again just like the people that you've worked with they have a story to tell and sometimes putting words literally onto paper or on the computer is just not that not the thing they want to do and not the thing that they feel really capable of doing you know but they have the story yes and so so I don't want to I don't want to discourage people to think that they, if they don't, they have to do it the right way the first time because nobody again, does it the right way don't. And the bigger issue is that people have an idea and they never start mm. and the resistance takes over and they think, oh, I just listened to this podcast interview with Kat and Karen. I'm like, I'm not really that good a writer and I'm not doing it right and blah, blah, blah. So you know what? I'm, not, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm not going to even try. And that's, that's not what I want people to take, take away. I want people to take away, get something down on paper. And that's why God created editors, like <laughs> get somebody else then to help you take it to the next level, but get it out there. Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art is a great book 
yes. because he talks about resistance and what are the things that are holding you back? And I'm telling you the hardest word to write in a book is the first one. Mm-hmm. Like, and you just have to, to sit down and write and do it. And, it, and as Anne Lamott says in bird by bird, you know, Nobody's doing it perfect the first time. Get it down, get it out there, but then find other people. There are a bazillion people out there, some good, some bad. I mean, it's like kissing frogs. I mean, you got you to gotta find somebody that gets you and, and gets your style, but then get somebody to speak into it and make it better and better and better until you get to the point you go, okay, this is, this is worth putting out there. Right. Um, but I don't want people to get, be discouraged. I want to be encouraged, but to, to know that, if it's important, if they've got a burning message that they need to get out, then they need to get it out. Yes. And then you, it, it's like anything. I took a, I took a painting class. Yeah. Like painting isn't necessarily my thing. I love words, but painting was not my thing. And I was with acrylics and my teacher came over, she's super encouraging. And she was like, Oh, the nice thing about paint is that you can just paint over it. <laughs> it's really okay. And so I'm a one on the Enneagram. I'm super perfectionist. I want to have it done right all the time. Like, I, I, you know, and I was just like, oh, and it's true with words too. You can just paint over it. Yes. And so, I mean, again, that's, that's the nice thing. You can just, you can revise and revise and revise till it gets to the point where you go, oh yeah, I think this is ready. And, you know, to me, that's, that's a great thing. It's a good feeling. Yes. There are a lot of books out there and there are going to be more books out there, but that's a good thing. Right. And, and I think um, right now I'm reading Crying in H. Mart, which I highly recommend. I think it's pronounced Michelle Sonner, I think. is Anyway, Crying in H. Mart. Very good. And the thing that's sticking out with me is her adjectives. And it just sticks out. And I had to remind myself, because <laughs> even as a writer, I'm like, oh, you know, she just has these great adjectives and she just writes it perfectly. And I had to remind myself, it probably wasn't like that the first draft. You have to go back. I mean, she'd be a genius if it was. (laughs) You have to go back. You have to realize, you know, where to move things. But then you you focus on adjectives. Okay, am I using the same thing? And that's one way of revising. And just realizing that our society tends to push us forward constantly. Like things have to be fast. In the indie world now, it's, you know, all about pushing out. 12 books a year at 10 books a year. I mean, ridiculous numbers. And I think we have to remind ourselves that this actually is worth taking some time to do and doing it well. And especially if it is your story, your memoir, your nonfiction or something, you want it to be able to stick out there and, and really make its place. Like Mike Kim getting up on a chart, although, you know, even if you don't make it on the chart, agreed. You want people to not stop reading it, so it, it's okay to take time. I mean, I know that there's a lot of time, investment, money, blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, but I'm still of the I'm still of the ilk, old school. You know that if your book changes one person's life, then yes. that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, and and again, I I know the business part of it. I've been doing this a really long time. But you want your book to have impact. It's all about impact. You wouldn't do it if you weren't looking for impact. Like it's got to impact somebody. Yes. And so if you don't start it, you don't have any impact. You don't have any opportunity. And if you don't finish it, you don't have any impact or any opportunity. But in between, I mean, I think the worst thing that people can do is self-edit. And I'm really bad at that. But getting that first draft down is the biggest hurdle. And then once you've got that, then you can go in and tweak and 
you can paint over it. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a fun thing. It's a good, it's a good thing. It's a good process. And that's why books are having impact. And that's why books do really well. It's because they connect with a reader and they have impact. Yes. I love that. And so let, let's talk a little bit about somebody who might have a book out there. Um, and maybe they didn't make it to the USA Today, number one, <laughs> wherever Mike Kim got to in Bezos letter. Bezos letters, Bezos letters. Mm-hmm. Um, got to. So there's hundreds of books published a day, right? Maybe thousands. Yeah. I think <laughs> In the world, we're all wanting to make an impact, but you have now embarked on a new mission to help people mm-hmm. who have a book out there and maybe relaunch it. Is that the correct word to say? Yeah, that's a good word to say. Um, we're calling it relaunch and leverage. So I have a, a business partner named Margie Ross, and she was president of a publishing house for 20 years. And we've been good friends for a really long time. And we were kind of lamenting over the fact that there are so many programs and services and people that are helping people get their first book out there, that they're doing that. And we realized that there are a lot of books out there that have launched, particularly during COVID. COVID was a really hard time for launching some books that there were a lot of good books out there that were basically, we're we're calling it um, underutilized, meaning that the author put the book out there and it's a good book, but they were disappointed with their results. Okay. And for whatever reason, either the publisher didn't, didn't do it right. There are a lot of people that will say that. I put my book out there, the publisher dropped the ball and now I'm like up a creek without a paddle, like now I'm done. Right. Or they they said, oh, I put it out there and then they closed the world <laughs> and nobody noticed. Or I put it out there and I only had six people on my email list and my whole, all my friends and family bought it and they loved it. And then, but now what? I, I, I right. don't know what to do. Yeah, it's that now what, right? The now what? Even if it did kind of okay, like let's yeah. say 200 yes. people bought it, you, there's like 8 billion people in the world. <laughs> yes. And that's even true. Like I know people that are very, very successful authors that their book in their, in my world, in terms of numbers, their book did well, but they were still disappointed. They thought it was going to do better. Mm. And so anyway, Margie and I put together um, a program that is called Unleash the Power of Your Book, and it's how to relaunch and leverage your book. So it's relaunching is how to create a relaunch strategy for your book to get it back out there. And then the leverage is that sort of that, that question of at the end, what do you want them to do? How do you leverage their book? Because there are people that want to use their book as a lead generator, meaning mm-hmm. if you find out about me through my book, then you'll come and you'll buy other things that I offer, whether it's speaking services or consulting services or community, or, you know, like who knows what, whatever you're, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that that book, you can leverage that book. And there are ways to do that. We've actually created a, um, we call it a leverage pyramid and your book is your, your lowest level. And then you look at the ways you can go up the pyramid to to leverage your book. So anyway, we're working on that and that will be coming out very, very soon. Yes. Uh, where are people going to be able to find that? Do you guys have a well, we website got, yet? Um, we've got unleashthepowerofyourbook.com. And it's not quite ready yet, but it will be soon. Or they can find it through me, which is strategicbookcoach.com. All right. And I, can send you those, I can send you those links. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So with um, COVID, since you mentioned it, 
Did you see, um, besides book launches, because book launches went all virtual and most book launches virtually were left something to be desired because I think, I mean, you're just, <laughs> you're just on your Zoom again. I think we all got Zoom Zoomed cranky. Out. <laughs> yeah. uh, was there anything else that sort of happened in the publishing world that maybe surprised you or I don't know that you noticed? Yeah, I, I think for me, I think COVID from my perspective, which I'm really happy with, gave people the kick in the pants to go, you know, life's short. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen. And I want to get my message out there. I want to get my idea out there. I want to have something that's going to have influence, have impact, going to make a difference. And there's no time like the present. And so I feel like people who have thought, you know, one day I'll write a book have decided to do it, which I think is great. Yes. But like I say about Amazon, I say this all the time. The good news is that Amazon allowed anybody who wanted to write a book to write a book. And the bad news is that Amazon allowed anyone who wanted to write a book to write a book. Yes. And so it's like anything, the cream rises to the top. And so there are a lot of books out there that have sold. I mean, the average book is selling 250 copies in its yeah. lifetime. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. And you go, do you want your book to impact more than 250 people? And most people would say yes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that um, what that means is a book has the, the litmus test for a book these days is that it has to be good quality. It has mm-hmm. to be It has to be clean. It has to be well edited. It has to be easy to read. It has to have a message that's compelling. And those books are going to, they're going to rise to the top. And then, and really, I mean, the old days, word of mouth was how you sold books. And guess what? Today, word of mouth is how you sell books. Hmm. But word of mouth today is called reviews. And so people re- read reviews. Okay. And so what happens is, is that you, you go look at reviews. So Yes. Bestseller status is great. I mean, I've achieved that a couple of times. It's great. I mean, a real bestseller status, like on a, on a traditional list. Yeah, that's great. But as honestly, on my books, I read reviews yes. and I look at how many stars it's getting and I look at what people are saying. And that's, that's what I'm using to look to see if a book is successful. And it's not your, so if people don't know this, all five-star reviews make me nervous because that means it's friends and family. Yes. Like I don't trust any book that's all five-star reviews. Yes. And I want to have like good news. If you get a one-star review, a couple two-star reviews, I think it's great. I love that. When we got our first one-star review, I was so happy. And the, actually the first one that we got, the guy was pissed that we hadn't actually interviewed Jeff Bezos. Oh, hey. Sorry. I mean, for some reason, we were not on his radar list um, and he did not give us his time. Can't even imagine why. Uh, but we got a one star review for that. OK, but what that means is you've reached you've reached people. Yes. That don't know you don't care about you, don't care about anything. And we got a one. star. And so I was like, yay. So that when I'm looking and reviewing a book, I'll look at I want the majority to be five and four star readings. I want some threes. I want a couple twos and I want an outlier one. I want that because that means that you've gotten enough mass, critical mass to be able to say enough people have read this book. So it's not just bias of the author. 
Yeah. Um, and, and it's their, you know, their mother, their uncle, and their, you know, their best friend have all left five root star reviews that said, oh, this is the book, the best book I've ever read. Okay, great. You know, so you really yes. want to have that. And so I'm always looking at reviews. And honestly, I buy a lot of books. I buy a lot of books. I buy a lot of, I get books, but I buy a lot of books. I like to buy a lot of books in the middle of the night. I'm a Kindle person. And so I'm really good with, with Kindle and clicking and buying books and I'll buy books, but you know what? I read reviews right? and I look at what the majority of the people have said. And then I go, oh, and then I make that decision. That's word of mouth. That's how people get word of mouth today. Because in COVID, if we're not at a cocktail party or a dinner party or a soccer field, and we're talking about the latest book we've had, you may be able to tell one person, but the reality is, is because of COVID, we're not with a zillion people now. And so what people are doing is they're looking at reviews and they're going, oh, okay, well, the majority of people like that, then I'll try that book. Yes. And so you really want to have that balance when you're looking for reviews and you want, you want verified reviews. And so if you have somebody that you've given a book and they love it and they're your target market, then go, you know, then you say, would you mind buying it on Kindle and then leave a verified review? Yes. Because Amazon's just algorithms and bots. I mean, it, it is. And so you've got a very verified review. So I'm looking at when I'm reading reviews to when I'm deciding to read, you know, whether I want to buy a book or not, I'll look at that and, uh, and then I'll make my decision. Yes. And then I still buy a lot of books. Yes. I I actually got a review yesterday, this four stars, and it said, excellent historical fiction. And you really have to change your mindset because I don't know if this is American or maybe Enneagram ones or something where you're like, hey, well, then it should be a five star. But really when I'm reviewing five stars are like the life changing, the books that I tell people about the books I never get rid of, no matter how many times I move. I mean, there are very few that should be five star reviews if you're a real reader. Right. And so a lot of times I will go over to Goodreads to mm-hmm. also check the reviews because those guys are readers and they have right. a way of categorizing the reads and giving the reviews out. And they're very stingy with five star reviews, which is good. Right. We're not supposed to yes. be like, that was the best food I've ever had when I was like, no, well, I'll probably never come back. <laughs> like, well, then it's not the best food you ever had. You know, right. your, your reviews should not always be five star. I completely agree with that. When you go up to five star, when they're only five star, you know, only the friends of them have, have reviewed it. You're like, well, I thank you very much, but I need other people to review this so that it goes a little bit to like, my sweet spot would be like 4.1, 4.2. That would be great. <laughs> I'm with you. So definitely, you know, A, people who are readers, go give reviews if you like the book. Even if you didn't like the book, but that there's something good to say that will give the the reader feedback. What I had a hard time with this summer was not really knowing the authors and wishing and not really knowing how to say to them, if you would pull this book and like redo it, you would get better reviews. So when you're, when you're on the opposite scale and you're only getting kind of, you have that seven, five-star reviews, because those are your friends and family. And then all the rest of them are twos or you get no more because people feel bad reviewing, then, then I feel bad. Then I wasn't sure what to say. Well, yeah. And I would say, I mean, the the nice thing about the way books are done today is for the most part, majority of books you can go in and fix and and redo. Yes. And, And more authors should, I would agree, more authors should do that. Even with us at Morgan James, because of how we print and how we, if something's either wonderful or egregious, we can change it. 
and make that new book available. And so, yeah, it's not a one and done, like go in and change it if it needs to get fixed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Don't just walk away from it. And that's kind of what I love about your, your course that you're going to do with the unleash the power of your book. Cause even if it did well, if it's been a few years, it's probably utilize it. You wrote the book, you spent all the, that time and that money, the tears, right. <laughs> the inks that came with it and releasing it, re, it. Is that a word? No, relaunching yeah. it. <laughs> releasing it. <laughs> releasing it. Yes. And you know, you always have to remember too, when you have nonfiction, especially and probably fiction, but new generations come up and they Absolutely. need to learn what you have to say as well. Yeah. And probably if it had any marketing or anything to it, you probably need to tweak it, right? And then relaunch it. And then it's great. It is. Uh, so thank you so much, Karen, for coming. I feel like I'm going to have to re-listen to you so because there's so much information <laughs> that you gave us. There's going to be lots of links in the show notes. But I appreciate you giving your time and talking to, a, to me Happy again. to do it. Happy to do it. I love books and I love authors. I love people having, there's such a, a power and a message. And so anything that I can do to help, I would love to do that. So thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.